complicated issues down to basic facts, simplifying the confusing and trying to make the boring entertaining. You are listening to Peter List and Labor Relations Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome to the first episode of LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio. Before I get to our guest today, I wanted to spend a minute to tell you the purpose of this podcast. Labor Relations Radio is a podcast where we'll be sharing news and opinion about relevant workplace issues, particularly as those issues pertain to labor unions and labor policy here in the United States. This podcast is affiliated with LaborUnionNews.com, of which I'm the editor, and the topics I'll be bringing over to the podcast are topics and stories that either I'm interested in or topics that I think listeners would be interested in. Now, if you're in labor relations, human resources, a business owner, or even if you're a union agent, the purpose of this podcast is to be informative. And if you find it informative... I have two asks of you. Number one, share Labor Relations Radio with your colleagues to help make it grow. And number two, subscribe to our News Digest on LaborUnionNews.com. That's where a lot of the stories that we'll be talking about come from. Now, one last thing. I've been involved with unions and labor relations for nearly four decades. That includes nearly a decade as a union member and union rep plus a degree in labor relations. And since leaving the union movement, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people over the years as mentors who specialize in labor law and employee relations. And in that regard, the guests I'm going to bring on to the show are people whose opinions and expertise are those who I believe would be beneficial for listeners to hear, regardless of what side of the table they're on. Now, that brings me to our first guest on Labor Relations Radio. In case you missed it, last Friday, President Biden issued an executive order requiring so-called project labor agreements on all federal projects worth more than $35 million. Then on Monday, the White House released the, quote, White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment Report. Both Friday's executive order and the White House report have an impact on just about every workplace in America. Project labor agreements, of course, are federal construction projects, and the White House report on just about everything else, including gig workers. So I wanted to have a guest on the first episode of Labor Relations Radio who knows a lot about the inner workings of Washington, D.C., Ben Brubeck is the Vice President of Regulatory, Labor, and State Affairs for the Associated Builders and Contractors, or ABC. Now, for those who may not know about the Associated Builders and Contractors, it's a national trade association for the construction industry that began in 1950 by seven contractors in Baltimore. They, those contractors, shared the belief that Construction projects should be awarded on merit to those most qualified and responsible low bidders. Since 1950, ABC has grown quite a bit, and today it has more than 21,000 member companies in 69 chapters around the United States. ABC's membership represents all specialties within the U.S. construction industry, and the association's mission is the advancement of the merit shop construction philosophy. That encourages open competition and free and a free enterprise approach that awards contracts based solely on merit, regardless of labor affiliation. Now, ABC is the merit shop construction industries voice with the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the federal government, and with state and local governments, as well as with the news media. And as the vice president of Regulatory, Labor, and State Affairs for ABC, Ben Brubeck is one of ABC's more well-known faces. I spoke to Ben just a few weeks ago, and with all that's happening in Washington, I wanted to have him on the first episode of Labor Relations Radio to share his insights. Here's Ben. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Ben Brubeck, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me back on the program. 
Sure. It sounds like uh, this may have to be a weekly thing as fast as stuff is coming out of the administration. Yeah, we're almost at uh, Valentine's Day, and uh, the Valentines to organize labor, uh, especially impacting the construction industry, are pretty rapid right now. We'll see what happens next month, I guess. Right. So let's. Um, there's there's a couple things that came out over the last four or five days. So let's kind of split them up a little bit. Um, the first was the announcement on Friday of the project labor agreements for the infrastructure projects of over $35 million. Can you explain for the listeners what a project labor agreement is? Because there's a lot of confusion on the non-construction side for HR and employees as well. Nobody really understands what PLAs are. Yeah, well, a project labor agreement is a, uh, a collective bargaining agreement unique to the construction industry that applies to basically one job site or one project. And what it says is that any contractor, whether they're the general contractor or the subcontractor, must agree to the terms and conditions of the PLA in order to work on the project and win that work. And the terms and conditions of the PLA vary, but they're typically um, drafted by labor and then presented to either the private owner or in the sake of what we're talking about here, which is government contracts. They are presented to the agencies and the agencies will mandate them in the procurement of, of the contracts. And the project labor agreements typically say that any contractor or subcontractor on the project has to get most or all their employees from union hiring halls, they have to get them from union apprenticeship programs or government registered apprenticeship programs. They have to uh, pay union scale wages above and beyond the Davis-Bacon Act or pay the Davis-Bacon Act wages. They have to follow union work rules and job classifications, which, which typically are um, anti-efficient anti, uh, in, in some instances. There's some feather bedding, bedding that goes on there. And then um, uh, and you've got to have all of your employees on the project pay into union pension and benefits programs. And effectively, these terms and conditions of the PLA um, discourage competition from non-union contractors and non-union employees, and also some unionized contractors and union workers that aren't part of the PLA and don't like giving up their collective bargained rights and terms and conditions for one type of project. Now, the rationale for PLAs, we can get into that in a little bit more, but the bottom line for taxpayers and for procurement officers who are, who are, who are procuring either government contracts, which would, could be state or local or federal contracts, um, is that the PLAs discourage competition from non-union contractors. And the non-union workforce represents about, uh, is about 87% of the construction industry. So that means about 13% of the construction workforce is unionized. So the argument is that the government, when they mandate project labor agreements, they are steering construction contracts to unionize contractors, and they're giving labor a monopoly to work on public taxpayer-funded construction projects with really little competition from non-union contractors and, and opportunity for non-union employees. And so when you cut that much competition, your costs increase. And a lot of research has been devoted to this issue and on the anti-PLA side, the research suggests that PLAs, when they're mandated, increase the cost of construction between 12% and 20%. So that's per project. So if you're a, con you know, if you're a taxpayer or your local school board, that means you're getting um, you know, fewer, uh, you know, fewer projects in a school district, less roads, less bridges, less affordable housing. And we can talk about all the kind of research that has been done on this, but it kind of makes sense. You, you, you know, you, the costs are going to go up when you're mandating uh, such a small portion of the industry to participate. Um, and there's some other things in PLAs that are particularly astonishing once you look at the terms and conditions of a PLA. One of the biggest ones is, is non-union workers, are, if they're allowed to work on a PLA project, and, and some of them say that you are allowed to use a couple, maybe like one out of every 10 workers, um, but those workers have to pay into union pension and benefit plans. They have to join the union. They have to meet vesting schedules to benefit to, from any of those um, contributions. And if they don't, all the money that's contributed by them on their behalf in the fringe benefit of their employee of their employers um, gets confiscated. And it's a windfall for these union programs. And so these non-union employees can experience wage theft uh, an average of about 34%, according to research. So this really is a scam on the backs of non-union employers and employees. And it's wage theft, and uh, 
it just goes to show you that the policies that are being promoted are not really about providing efficiency and high wages for contractors and employees. Um, they really have a, an alternative agenda, which is to steer contracts to their their cronies. And um, the, the the federal, sorry, Peter, go ahead. Let me let me slow you down for a second. We had sure. three things that we can kind of do a deeper dive into. You mentioned a few minutes ago the term feather bedding, which a lot of people don't know what that means, as well as um, the union work rules that I think you're kind of talking about with that. You also mentioned um, the discriminatory aspects of discriminating against basically 87% of the construction industry or construction workers out there. And then the last thing um, that I want to slow down on is the, the pensions and how the uh, non-union workers who become union for a PLA how they uh, lose that money, basically. Yeah, that so, sounds great. So let's let's start with feather bedding. Um, sure. That's an old term. A lot of people don't know what that means, and it, it goes way, way back. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so the term feather bedding is, is sort of like, <laughs> well, a lot of people see it on the side of the road, right? They drive by a construction job site. There's a lot of people standing around looking at each other, a lot of people not really doing work. Um, but the origins of this are basically collective bargaining contracts or agreements you know, describe who can touch what type of tools and equipment and perform what type of various construction work. And um, the, the union collective bargaining agreements are very specific. They say, you know, certain employees are only allowed to do this. They can only um, use heavy machinery. They can only do electrical work. They can only be laborers. Uh, and unfortunately, that way of doing business um, has has uh, is not the most efficient way to do it. Um, and, and I represent uh, non-union construction contractors for the most part. We do have some unionized contractors that we represent at ABC, but a lot of those contractors use a, a tool called multi-skilling, where they allow construction workers to um, build, let's say, a sidewalk, but uh, use their skills across multiple types of um, construction activity on a project. So they might be doing carpentry forms, they might be um, taking wheel, wheelbarrows of, of rocks and debris um, and operating heavy equipment to build a sidewalk, um, but it's very spe specific and specialized to that project. So that's a more efficient use of labor than having a unionized, um, you know, uh, carpenter come and set the forms, a labor move, uh, move debris and, and rock into the area, uh, someone to, to, you know, set concrete and heavy equipment and so on, and Teamsters to come deliver it and so on and so forth. So um, that that's a more efficient way to use labor and uh, and sort of maximize uh, value in, in, in any kind of investments in construction or infrastructure. So the, the feather bedding term you hear is really, it's not it's not quite like those no-show jobs you hear about in The Sopranos, but they are jobs that um, aren't, aren't necessarily um, the most efficient use of labor. Right. So if, in it's not just um, the construction industry that has restrictive work rules like that. There's a, um, and you may be familiar with this in Philadelphia at the convention center years ago where they had multi trades in their trade unions, all of them with their own rules where if you had a carpenter who had his saw out and an extension cord, you know, and you had another craft come in there, they couldn't touch the extension cord to move it to get their job done. So you had to wait for you know, specific things that that basically blew apart the whole convention project, so to speak, or their their stranglehold on the Philly Convention Center years ago. I don't know if you if you remember. Yeah, that. that's right. We actually looked at having a convention in Philly and uh, were shocked at how much it costs to display you know trade booths um, there on the floor because of those feather bedding work rules. And the reputation in the sort of convention space and, and those folks who organize those conferences, which are incredibly difficult to pull off, was that you don't want to do work in Philly because of these work rules. It was incredibly not friendly for customers. It was expensive. And you could you were never sure whether people could, could deliver on, the, on what you needed. Right. It was as simple as plugging stuff into a, a power strip. And if you, if you didn't get the right guy to do it, they would uh, unplug your stuff and, and uh, <laughs> tell you to go away. So, um, yeah, not not exactly customer friendly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the discrimination against non-construction workers or non-union construction workers, because that that's one that I've always been curious about. Um, the you know, the freedom to join a union 
has a concomitant with that, which is the freedom not to join a union, right? And it's a legally protected right, the right to join or not to join. And it seems to me, and it's, it's the equivalent of you can't discriminate against somebody who's pro-union, nor can you discriminate against somebody who's anti-union. Just like race, creed, color, national origin, they're all you know separate federal laws. So it would seem to me, and we, I've I've asked this, and my uh, one of my late colleagues also used to ask this: is why is it that the government condones discrimination one way with regard to you know non-union labor? Why is there not a legal argument to say, hey, you're discriminating against me because I choose not to be part of a union? Yeah, it's a question everyone always asks. They're like, well, how can project labor agreements be legal? I mean, you're just telling, you know, almost nine out of 10 workers, you're not welcome here. Like, how is this okay? How is this an inclusive policy? It's a great question. I think the answer is it's not a protected class like race or gender or religion. Uh, Maybe you could argue it should be, but uh, it, it does seem odd, especially because, you know, Republican administrations are not going out there saying, we only want non-union workers and non-union companies. Where we're seeing the reverse of that, and we're seeing it very overtly by the Biden administration. I mean, they are saying, there used to be a, a bit of a, a you know, a, a lie that was told like, oh, non-union contractors can bid on PLAs, but we know that they're never really gonna do it, so we're gonna kind of pretend like this is open to everything. The Biden administration has been saying full blown, hey, this is for union labor, for union contractors, we're pro-union, I'm the most pro-union president in history. And that, that's, that's definitely remarkable. But the thing about the construction industry that people don't understand is like, anyone can go down to a construction union hiring hall and say, I would like to join your union. And you have to meet their requirements. And then they will dispatch you to a unionized contractor and get work. It's not like there's not an opportunity to join a union. You just have to literally go down there. Now there's op- there are organizing campaigns to, to unionize individual companies but those typically don't come from internal sources. Those are external sources trying to put companies out of business or make them unionized so they use more union labor. So it's a bit of a unique situation in the construction industry, um, to speak to your point. Right, there's, um, to that point about the the pressure that unions place on non-union companies, wasn't it the head of the building trades years ago that essentially said, if we can't unionize them, we want them out of business? I don't know if he exactly said that, but their tactics certainly do that. And I've been at ABC for more than 18 years. And the stories I hear from our contractors and our chapters about um, efforts to put people out of business legally, but also put them out of business through some pretty awful, you know, terrorist type tactics are there. I mean, I'm thinking about um, a number of uh, ironworkers members in Philadelphia that burn down a Quaker meeting house yep. um, because they wouldn't build it all union. And the contractor that was building it open shop for a fair price for the Quakers was an ABC member of ours. And then this led to a RICO conviction of, of these guys doing this because they've been going around a whole marketplace and beating up people and sabotaging equipment, hurting customers. They hospitalized a couple of people and they finally went to jail. And that they, you know, I do have to give the Obama administration credit for going after those guys under RICO statutes. But that's the type of stuff we, we, we see occasionally. But that used to be very commonplace in the 70s, 80s, and, and, and even parts of the 90s. And it's not as commonplace. They've, they've sort of turned in their bats and their bricks and for, for briefcases and, 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 you know, coercion through government uh, rent, you know, you know uh, officials. So it's a different story um, for sure. Yeah. So um, you also mentioned a few minutes ago the, the pension funds, um, where if I'm a non-union employee, I, I get on a PLA project, um, I have to become a union member, and the monies go into a union pension fund. And then you slightly touched on the uh, vesting schedules, which I think that's where a lot of folks don't realize that monies that are paid into a pension fund, if I'm only on that project for two years and there's a vesting schedule to be vested in a pension fund for five years, there's, and I leave after two years because the job's done, the monies that went in for two years basically stays in the fund. I'll never see it. That's right. Yeah, they set it up in a way to kind of get you to uh, uh, join a union because you're going to lose the contributions that 
you or your employer made on your behalf into those union programs. And so it's another incentive to, to sort of, you know, have more people be unionized and pay into the system and so on and so forth. But for it, it's a bad deal for these non-union employees who may be allowed to work on PLA projects. And believe me, they are very few and far between. It's, it's a token exception just to claim that this is open to everybody. But those who, who can do it, um, you know, will lose that contribution. And, and also they're going to pay into union, uh, you know, healthcare plans and, and other programs they have that their employer that's not needed might already be offering, but they have to pay into those programs too. And so the employer has to pay double benefits costs and the employees lose any money that's paid to the union programs. So it's really a windfall for, for, for labor and at the expense of competition and at the expense of non-union contractors. And the non-union contractors and employees are, have, have a couple other different issues on the PLA issue and the pension issue with respect to PLAs. The non-union employers, if they pay into these multi-employer pension plans and don't have the right language in the PLA, can actually um, expose themselves to multi-employer pension plan withdrawal liability and be on the hook for, for a pretty hefty sum of dollars at the end of uh, the rainbow in these pension plans, which are shaky in many instances, although they did receive a $100 billion bailout in the uh, uh, ARPA bill earlier last year. Um, so it's unclear what the exact effect of that's going to be on, on those pension plans. But um, is, many of these plans are, are not doing as well as they should be. And, and that's you know something that the lawmakers should consider when they're mandating these on taxpayer-funded projects. They're forcing more people in these pension plans instead of allowing them to continue to have 401k plans and other types of programs that are going to be there for them um, compared to the alternative. This is purely conjecture on my part, but I don't think the lawmakers care. It's all about where they get their votes. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the, the PLA issue is incredibly political. It, it doesn't seem to really hit on uh, logic or, or, you know, the marketplace. Um, and, and that, you know, that was definitely evident in the rationale that the White House um, put out there on Thursday and Friday related to this executive order that President Biden signed. And, and that executive order for your audience only applies to federal contracts, um, but it applies to federal contracts that are over $35 million that are procured by federal agencies. So these are agencies like GSA, Army Corps of Engineers, um, Veterans Affairs, um, NAFAC, those guys building military and, and veterans and, and, and government construction projects, buildings, that kind of stuff, that, that applies to them. Um, but the Biden administration is doing other things, uh, applying to federally assisted contracts. And those are contracts that are procured by state and local governments, and they get federal money through the infrastructure bill that was just passed or the ARPA bill that was passed. And they're trying to encourage and, and push PLAs on those types of, of state and local projects. So. Um, the Biden administration is kind of doing a one-two punch on federal contracts and federally assisted contracts to get uh, more PLAs out there and steer more contracts to unionized contractors and union labor. And that's that's bad news for taxpayers, and it's bad news for uh, the construction industry's you know, non-union workers and employees. All they want to do is rebuild their communities. They want to compete on a level playing field. They don't want any funny business. And um, that's, that's what we're seeing right now with these policies. But the rationale that the, that the Biden administration was using to justify this is that PLAs result in on-time and on-budget um, construction and workers are paid higher wages. And you can kind of go through each of those arguments and, and sort of scratch your head and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, um, the strikes that the PLAs are allegedly going to stop are, are strikes caused by union labor. So wait, we're going to give union labor a monopoly on a taxpayer-funded project to stop bad behavior that they themselves create? Well, this doesn't make any sense. This sounds like extortion to me. Or, wait a minute, you're saying that non-union contractors don't have the ability to deliver projects on time and on budget? Well, if that's the case, how come ABC contractors won more than 50% of almost 1,900 contracts procured by the federal government during the last decade? How could that all be possible? So, you know, this is all about politics, like you said before, it's not about a rational dialogue on these issues. Well, I, you know, anybody who lives in the Northeast and when they talk about projects on time can, should probably be able to remember the big dig, you know, in Boston. So, yeah, I, I actually got a kick out of um, the signing ceremony that President Biden had for this executive order. You know, he was at a local five iron workers hiring hall in, in Maryland flanked by uh, Vice President and Secretary of uh, Labor Marty Walsh. And, 
people don't know this, but Marty Walsh you, it was the head of the Boston building trades for quite some time. So he was talking about the benefits of PLAs, and I was laughing, thinking, yeah, I wonder if the PLA helped uh, the billion-dollar boondoggle, the big dig, and all the accidents and strikes and other problems up there right. with that problem, that project. And we've got many other big digs underway right now across the country with PLAs attached to them. Um, there's this high-speed rail project out in California that's not really going anywhere. Um, there's the Seattle big dig on the, in the West Coast. All of these have had huge overruns, delays, um, labor law violations, discrimination on job sites, workers drinking on job sites, doing drugs on dr- job sites, things that kind of undermine the claims that um, PLAs will deliver on-time, unbudget, quality construction. Uh, and, you know, look, a lot of these things are not specifically as a result of the PLA, but, it, you know, it does undermine the claims that the PLAs can deliver X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I wonder if, if there's a database that kind of keeps track of all that. If not, it should be created. We've got a, a very thick archive of, of projects that have had problems on it. And um, our general counsel, Maury Baskin, and I had drafted something back in 2009 when President Obama had issued his pro-PLA executive order that applied to federal contracts over $25 million on a case-by-case basis. And, and that was called PLAs, the Public Record or Poor Performance. And there were you know, multiple projects in sort of each of these categories related to overruns, uh, safety issues, uh, increased costs, delays, those kinds of things. Um, and I think that something will be produced in the future to speak to what's happened in the last decade. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'll have to have you back on when you guys get that together. So, <laughs> so um, let's talk about what came out this morning. The White House Task Force report on worker organizing and empowerment. I'm still thumbing through it, so there's a, a whole lot to talk about. Um, I think in probably the coming days it'll come out of it. But yes, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I'm like you. I'm still thumbing through it, uh, looking for the recommendations that, that came out of this uh, White House task force. And uh, this has been something that the Biden administration has been working on for you know, almost a year, um, and it's headed up by Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh and. Vice President Harris and a couple other stakeholders, and it's really looking at ways that the federal government can leverage uh, union membership and increase union membership in both uh, the public sector, which is government employee unions, as well as the private sector. Um, I'm more focused on the private sector side of things, especially in the construction industry. So I was looking at, well, what's in there? And and there's talk there about um, expanding PLA requirements or encouragements on federal contracts, as well as federally assisted contracts um, through grants and other enticements to uh, state and local applicants for federal assistance. So you know, I mentioned earlier that there's this push on federally assisted projects, and, and that's that's real. Um, you know, federal contracts, there's only about $30 billion a year uh, procured. Um, in, in total for construction domestically, but federally, uh, but but public works contracts is, is more like 300 billion a year, um, and give or take, and, and that you know a lot of that money does have federal dollars in there and federal strings attached to it. So um, yeah, I mean that we're looking at that. There's certainly PLA mandates in there, uh, PLA encouragements. There's also a, um, a provision in there that's of interest to the construction industry related to encouraging um, registered apprenticeship programs as well as union apprenticeship programs on future contracts, um, which is something that's never been uh, required in legislation as far as I know. It would be a total new frontier of kind of trying to limit who can compete for contracts. Um, And I I say that from a position where ABC supports registered apprenticeship programs. We have more than 300 registered with states and local governments across the country, but um, the very few people graduate from registered apprenticeship programs and very few people have come out of them um, on an annual basis. I think 40,000 came out last year, which is not enough to meet the skilled labor shortage in the construction industry, which is about 450,000 people last year, and it's probably gonna be even more um, this year. So those are those are two big, areas where I think are of interest to the construction industry. The other thing in there was talking about expanding Davis-Bacon um, regulations and modernizing them. I'm always suspicious of what those that, that modernization might actually look like 
Um, but Davis Bacon, for your listeners who are out there that may not know what it is, it's a, um, a 1931 law that requires what they call prevailing wages to be paid to construction workers on federal and federally assisted construction contracts. And those wage rates are set by the government uh, through a convoluted survey process. And, and there's talk of trying to you know, modernize that process. But typically the wage rates are, are union scale, um, at least on f- about 50% of the wage rates are, fi- are union scale. But if you if you throw out the residential construction rates, it's probably closer to 80% are union scale rates. So, you know, the unions have a big lobby to protect Davis-Bacon and make sure that it, it, it remains the way it's set up so that it's union scale most of the time because they want to make sure the union scale wages are, are required so they don't have to compete on wages. Um, and union work rules as well are also part of that too. So that's another part of this task force. And there's a bunch of other things in there of interest to, um, to the business community related to proact and other types of, of, of ways to kind of take away worker freedom. But those are, but the main ones in the construction issue I've just highlighted. Well, one of, one of them that, um, I don't think is aimed specifically at the construction industry is the, um, prevent and address worker misclassification going after the independent contractors, so to speak, it could, it could possibly, uh, extend to some of your GCs if they, if they've got subcontractors or, you know, one or two people that they'll call in for certain projects, you know, carpenter or something like that. Um, the whole worker misclassification issue, I think they're aiming more for the Uber or the drivers out in the ports in California, but I think that could possibly extend to you guys. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see that, uh, but yeah, you know, worker misclassification uh, that sometimes is talking about independent contractors or that's talking about people that are, you know, paid the wrong the, the wrong Davis Bacon wage rate for our for our industry. That's sort of where you hear those terms thrown around. And there's a there's a time and a place for independent contractors in the construction industry, so that they should be allowed to operate. Um, there are a couple tests that allow people to determine whether they're an independent contractor or not, and they're a bit convoluted. There's IRS tests, there's DOL tests, and there's broader discussions about how to fix that. Um, but Uber and Lyft definitely are at the the forefront of that debate. And um, there certainly are people that, that uh, are not following the spirit of the law. And, and I think everyone needs more clarity on exactly what is an independent contractor, because you know, we do represent contractors who uh, are competing against people who are cutting corners in that space and, and that everyone needs to have clarity and, and respect the law there. Yeah. I, uh, and I, we should probably back up a little bit. The, um, the task force report that came out today is about 45 pages, including the front and back covers. And I'm just, I'm sitting here thumbing through it as we're talking and way back on page 37, for example, it's kind of interesting. Ensure that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management offshore wind leasing projects are built with union labor. And so, you know, it's that whole new climate, green climate um, type of projects that they want. They want it to be done with union labor. Uh, putting PLA's PLA evaluation preference for Department of Interior construction contracts. So that would be um, Department of Interior's public lands, right? Tribal schools, replacing and repairing bridges and roads in our national parks. So that's going to be it. Or laboratory spaces. So, yeah, there's a ton of stuff in there. It's just basically, um, it's like a cafeteria going into a school cafeteria and just looking at all the bad, mushed-up food in all these different compartments. Yeah, there's there's uh, efforts to make sure that broadband's installed in rural areas uh, with with union labor, which is going to be hard to do because there's not many union workers in rural areas. They're mostly all non-union, um, and uh, you know the, these are all recommendations, and they're building off of things that have already been done in the first year of the Biden administration's efforts to steer more work to unions. And the, the next question is, like, well, when will all this stuff really? We'll see proposals on these. And, I think, that, I think the report says in six months we're going to kind of circle back and, and see where we're at on a lot of these issues. So I'd expect a lot of these uh, ideas to come out in um, regulatory proposals or legislative text, but probably through regulations and executive orders for the most part and task forces um, throughout the remainder of the Biden administration. So 
know, that's why um, I think the midterm elections will be very inter interesting to see how much of this agenda gets put in place. Uh, if Republicans take back the, the, the House and the Senate, I think there'll be more oversight and more um, pushback on this. But, you know, we've seen White House administrations kind of lose their legislative uh, agenda and ability to pass that and go into full executive and regulatory um, mode. And, and that might be what we'll see for the next two and a half years out of the Biden administration, um, you know, starting from today on these labor issues. So your, your audience is going to be very curious about where these things go and participating in the rulemaking process and a filing maybe litigation against some of the ideas that come out that are that are not um, legal or authorized or appropriate. Well, you know, part of the problem with all of this, and I've, I've found this for the last 30 years plus, is probably closer to the 40 I've been around unions, um, or close to 40. The um, problem is all this stuff that gets put out there, only two to three percent of the people out there know what's going on. You know, and I'm, I'm just making the numbers up, but you know, most of this stuff, like this report came out today, you're aware of it, I'm aware of it, people following unions are aware of it, HR may be roughly aware of it, but most companies, even CEOs, don't even know what's going on until it goes to bite them in the butt. And it's, it's hard to wear, raise awareness to that. Yeah, and that's one of the, the reasons why people join ABC and other trade associations in this space is we help flag these issues for them and we help you know, shape them and, and push back on them or help put them in place. And, and uh, that's why we're here. Um, but the average taxpayer has no idea. The average procurement official has no idea. Um, and what I find too is that the federal contractors themselves you know, they're the ones with giant bullseyes on their backs when the legislative agenda can't uh, apply to all all companies or, or a broader law can't be passed. So the federal contracting is very complicated. It's harder to do federal contracting work than it is to do any other kind of construction work. And the feedback I get from our members, and this is across other industries too, is federal contracting is like no fun anymore. It's not easy to get contracts. It's not profitable. It's very, very complicated. There's so much overhead. And the government sits around and scratches their heads about, well, how can we get more small businesses, minority women-owned businesses, contractors, minorities into these um, contracting opportunities? And how do we grow these businesses? And, and then on the other hand, they're out over there layering all these you know, labor standards and all these new regulations and all these other things that, um, that you know, under, undermine what they're trying to do with the other hand. So uh, it, it is a bit of a, a, there is a bit of a disconnect on, on the, on this, on the federal contracting side. And it's something that I think um, that all, all parties, regardless of your affiliation with whatever party it is and whether you like unions or not, need to think about hard when they start putting these policies in place. And the poor contracting officers, I mean, they get whiplash every four years on whether, you know, this applies or that applies, and, and that also impacts the quality of, of projects and the quality of taxpayer investments and in infrastructure. Right. I think last time we talked, uh, we were talking about that ping pong ball that just swings back and forth like a pendulum. Yeah, just all the time, every time there's a new administration. I was looking at uh, page 17 of this thing, for example, it talks about um, streamlining the process to become a dues-paying member by improving dues processing. That's for the OPM. And then um, developing guidance and labor relations materials for agencies, this is towards the, the government, obviously, to use in trainings for managers and supervisors regarding unfair labor practices and neutrality in union organizing campaigns. It's crazy. Yeah, those, those, those seem to all be applying to public uh, unions. Yeah. But they, but they're, they want to extend some of this stuff to, you know, private federal contractors. They want to extend extend the education of contracting officers to the, the benefits of, of unionization for the federal contracts. And, you know, we, we know with this PLA executive order, for example, that was signed on Friday, they're going to hold some sort of training uh, situation for contracting officers who are engaged in awarding construction contracts. And I don't know if this is like a clockwork orange situation where they have to sit in front of a, some kind of training talking about how great PLAs are, but they, they plan on doing something really aggressive with contracting officers to make it very hard for them to rightfully opt out of a policy that limits competition and increases costs and is not in the best interest of, of, of taxpayers and federal statutes that call for, for competition and contracting. 
Um, so I don't know how they're going to get around some of the federal statutes that are there, but um, this training will apparently um, result in more PLAs and and that's going to be something we're going to be trying to fight at ABC. Well, I think what people sometimes um, get lost on is when we're talking about PLAs or we're talking about you know more government workers becoming unionized, and you things you have things like official pay, which is union representatives using taxpayer money to do union business, you know, while on the job. All that stuff increases the cost of doing business for the government, right? So. You know, it's essentially a tax increase or more deficits um, that get paid for it by the taxpayer. And, you know, people just, it's so kind of deep in the weeds and this stuff happens while people are working their normal jobs and they don't, you know, if they catch the evening news, it's not really going to be talked about other than two-minute sound bites. So it's just, you know, it people all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, how the heck did the government get so bloated? Well, it's been happening, you know, death by a thousand cuts, so to speak. And this is just, and, you know, a couple big ones. No, and there is this sort of negative feedback loop, right? So you've got the Biden administration, which takes tons of political campaign contributions from construction trade unions and other broader union stakeholders. And then they go out and require union labor and union contracts to go to their cronies those guys benefit, get more money, and then they send that money that, that money back. I mean, it's it's kind of a cycle of corruption that shouldn't really be happening, um, you know. And this, it, it's you know, look, there's there's benefits to joining a union, and unions do a terrific job with workforce development, and we work closely with unions on a lot of key issues um, for our industry, and and um, you know, our, our contractors hire unionized subcontractors, unionized subcontractors hire non-union open shop um, subcontractors. So there's, you know, we, we have a great relationship with them, but we don't need the government in the middle of that to tell people, you know, who can and can't bid on projects. We need fair and open competition so that the best contractors and the best workers win and, and, and deliver the best product at the best price to taxpayers. And, and we don't get that in, in this uh, cycle of corruption that we're we're seeing on some of these these contracting schemes. Yeah. So, what what's ABC doing about all this stuff? You just just kind of digesting. I know the report from today, but um, yeah. So for the from the report today, you know, I think we're going to be monitoring it closely. Um, there's going to have to be some rulemaking and some other proposals that, that you know put some teeth and meat on the bone and, and teeth on existing policies to try to you know move this forward because right now a lot of these are just ideas so we're watching that closely providing feedback and comments on that and obviously litigation might be an opportunity there might be an opportunity for litigation in some of these issues um a lot of a lot of like-minded organizations are out there probably trying to work together on on you know coalitions about pushing back on some of this stuff with respect to the pla executive order um you know we're going to make sure that the construction industry understands what this is we're going to make sure that they participate in the rulemaking process we're going to make sure that um, that you know lawmakers, especially Congress, understands what the Biden administration just did and how that's going to make investments in infrastructure less efficient and cost taxpayers more. And um, you know, hopefully, there'll be some oversight uh, over this uh, process. And we'll be looking at litigation. And I think we'll be making the case to the Biden administration as well as um, to contracting officials and federal agencies that. You know, PLAs are not appropriate, not in the best interest, and um, try to limit the negative impact of this executive order. And, and we, we've had um, a really good track record doing that. Like I mentioned earlier, during the Obama years, you know, there were just 12 project labor agreements required on almost 1,900 construction contracts during the 2009 and 2020 uh, era um, across across Obama and Trump administrations on the PLA issue. And that just goes to show you that PLAs are not needed or necessary um, and only really occur when there's a lot of, you know, undue influence and, and politics involved, which I think the Biden administration is trying to really ratchet up. So we'll be fighting hard um, against these uh, PLA schemes and, and hopefully uh, on behalf of taxpayers, too. Let me let me ask you a question. Um, I know it's probably too early to get member feedback on the, the task force report that came out today, but have you heard members or heard from members since the PLA came out on Friday? 
Yeah, we did. And, and, you know, we also heard initial feedback from members about the task force without seeing the results, but, you know, they've been doing meetings and talking about it for months. And the feedback from all of them has been just really frustrated. They're like, look, you know, we expect to get a fair shot uh, just because we're, we're non-union and we have union contractors who say like, this is not fair. Um, and they get frustrated because they, you know, they're hoping for a president and a government that represents all and gives everyone a fair shot. And they just feel like they're not gonna get this. Um, and so a lot of the contractors are, are worried. They're worried, are they gonna be able to, you know, continue to employ all the employees that work for them in the future if they can't get any more federal contracts? Do they need to shift their business to some other area that doesn't have these restrictive mandates? And a lot of them are just pissed and they're like, look, I, I, I want to get more active in the next election cycle and make sure these guys are th- thrown out. And we have, a, we have a phrase at ABC, get into politics or get out of business that's been around for more than 60 years. And uh, our members believe that they really are active in politics because they know what's at stake and they know that the construction industry is a victim of, of overregulation and, and crony contracting, and they want to just have a, a level playing field to compete. Yeah. So let me um, let me ask you this. I, I asked you this last time we talked too. If I'm a small, medium, or large contractor, um, and I know ABC's got ABC membership and stuff like that. From the political side, to use your phrase, get into politics or get out of business. If I wanted to get active with ABC, what do I do? So, you know, ABC uh, really engages our members in the political process. We don't do a ton with people who are not members. So the best thing to do is just to join ABC at the local level at our chapters. We've got 69 chapters across the country. Our members are commercial industrial contractors. They have all kinds of great events, networking, education for both craft training as well as management and um, safety, leadership, registered apprenticeship programs, the the huge menu of reasons to join ABC. But one of them is government affairs and making sure that you have people fighting in Washington, DC, as well as state capitals and municipalities who are just trying to make sure that y'all have a fair shot to compete for work. So joining ABC is a good step. And then the other thing is just talking to lawmakers and and, um, supporting those who believe in free enterprise and also getting, you know, industry coalitions and industry stakeholders aware of what's going on. Like you said, so many people don't know what's happening on these labor issues and aren't following it until it's too late. So I'm really trying to develop, you know, all of those ways to get active and get engaged. Um, We have a website called the Free Enterprise Alliance, which um, educates stakeholders on a lot of these key issues. And we also have a a coalition website fighting back against government mandated PLAs called buildamericalocal.com. So if people want to get more information about PLAs, buildamericalocal.com is a great resource as well. I'll, I'll include those in the uh, links under the, the audio portion of this. Um, let, me, let me ask you another question. I don't, don't know if you guys are doing this, so if you are, you know, just interrupt me. But, you know, one of the things that is, um, I think, impactful towards politicians is the fact that if I'm a union guy, um, I get newsletters, and it's basically soft campaigning. But you know, I can get the numbers out to rallies, and I'm always getting. And I did this as a union editor of a, a union newsletter. Um, you know, we would we would get our talking points from D.C., and I'd insert them, and you know, so we're always pumping up the union cause, so to speak. Now, as an employer on, say, your ABC uh, member companies, you're talking to owners, you're talking to VPs, but are you talking to the employees? And this gets a little difficult because you've got regulations from an employer's perspective talking politics, but, you know, there may be, you know, part of this is you've got to filter the messaging down to the employee level. Yeah. Yeah, the members, you know, the executive management, they they're, they they take the information we get, and if they want to, they share that with their employees. But the employees turn on TV and see us, you know, in newspapers and on TV talking about what's going on politically and through policy, and so they get it. And a lot of these folks participate in our grassroots, um, you know, efforts. They testify at hearings. They go there and say, hey, look, this policy that you're trying to push forward is going to put me out of business or take, you know, food off my table and hurt my family for no reason. 
Uh, I choose not to join a union for these reasons. And I, and I make a great wage and I have benefits and I have a great safety program and I've got great colleagues. Why are you disrupting our American dreams? Um, so we do hear from those, those you know, employees. Um, but yeah, it's there are more employees than, than companies. So you, the, the unions do have an advantage um, with as far as you know, boots on the ground and going to some of these events and holding rallies. And you know, that's they're there to pressure lawmakers to get their agenda done. They don't employ workers like contractors who contractors are out there building stuff and they have other other they're busy right now right. They, they can't right. be engaged 100 percent in the political theater like we see a lot of you know union business agents and other stakeholders who are pushing for their agenda so there is a um a much bigger maybe more silent or quiet community out there that's getting getting hurt by these policies yeah you know i uh i, I said at the very beginning of this this is going to be possibly a weekly thing we just to- talked about you know two weeks ago on the vaccine mandates and and other issues um we should probably set up a almost a weekly call maybe <laughs> so <laughs> have to wait to see what comes out but anyway well ben brubeck thank you very much uh for joining the inaugural episode of labor relations radio i appreciate it well, appreciate it. Thanks so much, and hopefully we'll get together soon. And uh, best of luck with your with your new program. All right, thank you, sir. Good talking with you. You too, Peter. Take All care. Right. Bye bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Ben Brubeck from the Associated Builders and Contractors, and as you could tell, Ben is a wealth of information and knowledge. I'm going to have him back from time to time here on Labor Relations Radio because as things pop up in D.C., not just about the construction industry, he, he has a lot of information. And as you can tell, if you're listening, um, we were just thumbing through the White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment. I assume we're going to do some more conversations about that, whether it's Ben or, or other guests on the show. In any case, that is our first episode of Labor Relations Radio. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, My name is Peter List, and I am editor of laborunionnews.com, as well as a bunch of other things. And I hope that you share this episode, as well as subscribe to the laborunionnews.com daily digest. We'll be sharing a lot of news over the coming months and years ahead. In any case, thanks for tuning in. Look forward to talking with you again. been listening to Labor Relations Radio.